to Life Lessons. We're Jen and Sherry. I'm Jen Stevens, a retired teacher of 28 years and the author of the New York Times bestseller, Fast Feast Repeat. And I'm Sherry Bullock. I've worked in healthcare for over 26 years, and I've been an active volunteer for many organizations. We're both wives and moms, and let's face it, we're the glue that holds it all together in our homes. In our careers, we have always been problem solvers who help others. And that's what we'll be doing here, answering questions you didn't know you had, one smart solution at a time. We're always looking for ways to make our lives easier, help us be more productive, or improve our health and wellness. So, let's live our best lives, one day at a time, and let's have some fun along the way. Hi, everybody. We are so glad you're here today. Welcome to this week's episode of the Life Lessons Podcast. How are you doing today, Sherry? I am doing great. It's a rainy day, but... Sometimes rainy days are nice because it means I don't feel pressured to go outside and do, you know work around the house. <laughs> well, I get it. Sometimes it's like a good excuse to just take it easy. You don't have to feel like you're being a slacker. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, can't go that outside is, writing. That is something I struggle with. Well, I just have to also say that it is bike week here in the greater Myrtle Beach area. I'm in Surfside Beach, but it's bike week all the way up from North Myrtle Beach, I think all the way down to Myrtle's Inlet and who knows how far. So y'all might hear motorcycles. It is very oh, possible fun. that you you will be able to hear motorcycles in the background because it is they're on the street and they're very loud. I remember last year when we moved here, we moved here during bike week. It was week. like the week after you moved, wasn't it? Or the it week was what, We moved during bike week. And so the house next door to us was full of people there with their bikes. And it was so loud going up and down the road all the mm-hmm. time because, you know, we were, you can hear it from the highway. And um, I was like, oh, my gosh. Myrtle Beach is more, it's louder than I thought, but it was just bike week. But I, I actually am having a lot of fun. Everybody is having such a good time. All the people that are here on their motorcycles are just full of joy. Does you, it feel like that's kind of the start of tourist season? Yes, it really, yeah. really does, you know, because Memorial Day is around the corner. But people on their bikes are just really fun people to watch. They're they're nice people. Mm-hmm. You know, what you think of from the movies, like people like hitting each other with beer bottles. It's not like that. They're just nice, normal people who are having fun at the beach on a bike. Yep. And it's not wild and crazy. And it's just, it's just loud. That's the only thing. <laughs> <laughs> but I like them. I like the bikers. Now it's time for our weekly good news segment. And today we have an email from Kathy Wayman. She wrote, Dear Jen and Sherry, I've been listening to all your episodes as well as Jen's Intermittent Fasting Stories podcast. I so enjoy and look forward to each one. Today, I have a good news story for you. My daughter has an Airbnb that she rents out, and it has a door with a coded doorknob. She always changes the code between guests. Well, somehow she locked herself out and had guests arriving in a few hours. She called some friends, but nobody knew how to get it open. One of them suggested she call the police, so she did. In about five minutes, the nicest police officer came and he tried everything to get it open. When nothing else worked, he said that he could carefully ram the door open, but that she might have to fix the door jam. So that is what he did and he got it open for her. Then she was trying to figure out how to quickly get the door fixed before guests arrived when the cop said, you know, things are a little slow. I can just fix that for you in a jiffy. I'll go get my tool bag and be back to fix it. Sure enough, in a few minutes, he was back, and he fixed her door jam for her. 
He went above and beyond, and he had the door working perfectly before the guests were due to arrive. And as soon as she told me this story, I thought of sharing it with you guys. Thank you for all you do to keep bringing us new episodes. Well, I love that story. It made me think of a of a customer service experience that we had this past week. You know, we're selling our house. We close next Tuesday, and we had a home inspection. And there were a few things, like the air conditioner wouldn't come on because it was too cold that morning. And like, so he just wrote it into the home inspection and, and the hot water heater, Chad had turned it down. So it would, wasn't hot enough. And I'm like, oh, well, Chad uh-huh. turned it down. And so of course the purchasers were like, we want to do hire technicians to come and, and we're like, I'm like, no, there's nothing wrong with them. So I asked the home inspector if he would come back uh-huh. after we had, and he did, he came back. And one of the things he had put on the report was that the shower door didn't close right. And they wanted us to fix that. Well, this home inspector fixed it while he was there. Really? Just like this police officer. He's like, oh, I can fix that. It's just a screw. And he fixed it. And Chad had not turned both of the hot water heater elements on. I didn't know there were two. Chad had turned them both down. Only they still wasn't hot enough. So the guy's like, I think one of your elements is broken. And Chad's like, no, I just didn't turn it back up. And so he's like, well, let me turn it up. So he turned it up and he waited for the hot water heater to get hot up to temperature. He waited and then he measured and he's like, all right, you're all set. You're fine. Anyway. This was the inspector that the buyers were paying or you were paying? Well, Who it's pays diff- for that? I, well, it would normally be the buyer. In our neighborhood, our neighborhood is weird. The homeowner has to have a home inspection and then you share it with the buyer. It's just our neighborhood, ha- our HOA has really weird rules. I gotcha. And so it's so that when a house hits the market, everything has been fixed. They want because uh-huh. it makes the neighborhood look good. Right. If, if you're not putting, you know, anyway, that's the rationale behind it. So he was technically working for us. But the fact that he came back, it, we didn't have to pay more, but he came back to check those things and actually fixed something. Anyway, his name was Brian, great home inspector in the Surfside area. That's great. We were so impressed. I was like, anything, if we ever buy, of course, I don't want to buy any more property. I would like to be done. <laughs> no more moving. But if we ever did, he would be the guy I would call. It was amazing. Well, this reminds me, I have a life lesson for y'all. Okay. When I moved into my house in 2018, there was a direct TV satellite dish on the roof. And our home inspector didn't say a word about it. I never really thought about it. We didn't use it, but like I never thought to take it down. It just out of sight, out of mind. And I kind of forgot it was up there until I was having chimney repairs. And one of the company actually took pictures of the chimney to show me, you know, what was wrong with it and why they needed to fix it and whatever. And I saw a satellite dish in the picture and I was like, I have a satellite dish on my roof. (laughs) So the new company had to peel back some shingles in order to put like flashing around the chimney and put a, it's called a cricket. It's like a built up area behind the chimney that diverts water around the chimney. And so they had to build this up. And so they had to pull some shingles back. And when they did that, they realized I had a bunch of wood rot under my shingles. And it 100% came from the satellite dish being mounted to the roof. And I like, thankfully, he said it was only a matter of time before my roof collapsed. Oh, my God. Because the decking was so wet and rotten. Collapsed. Collapsed. Oh, my God. Yes. And so they had to peel back more shingles and they had to put down new decking. And, you know, I have to say they told me that if they ran into additional problems that my bill would go up clearly if they had to use more supplies and stuff. Well, so I was expecting when I paid them that I was going to owe a lot more. They did not charge me a penny more. 
because they had the supplies anyways. I mean, they had to buy so many shingles and it's not like they had to buy more and they had to, they had decking anyways to replace it around the chimney. And so they, like they had the supplies, they didn't charge me anything. They didn't even charge me for the extra time. Um, So that was wonderful. Heath Chimney Services out of Anniston, Alabama. That's awesome. This is not an ad for them. They were just (laughs) wonderful. They were were just that awesome. Exactly. So I actually looked up online, like, are you supposed to do that? And no, you are never supposed to put a satellite dish on your roof ever. Roofing companies will tell you never do it. We had satellite dish on our roof in Augusta. If you have one on your roof, I really suggest you call get it off. It ins- call somebody to inspect it and get it off. It's oh my bad, gosh, bad that's news! Really, that's a very good life lesson. Yes. So, listeners, we need your stories. Send your good news story to connect at lifelessonscommunity.com. We want to hear about companies that have given you exceptional customer service. Give a shout out to a special someone in your life. Tell us an amazing story or share anything that might be inspirational to fellow listeners. We look forward to hearing from you and sharing your good news in an upcoming episode. So before we get to the life lesson of the week, we like to take a minute to tell you about the companies that make it possible for us to bring you the podcast. And today I would like to remind you about all the great companies that are featured at jenstevens.com slash cleanish. You know, I like to keep it simple when it comes to eating mostly clean. I rely on meals from Green Chef, window openers from Daily Harvest, and clean wines from Dry Farm Wines. And when it comes to living mainly clean, I use Beauty Counter for my makeup, skincare, shampoo, and conditioner, and Branch Basics for my household cleaning needs. Go to jenstevens.com slash cleanish. There are links to purchase cleanish as well as links for special offers to all of my favorite clean companies, Green Chef, Daily Harvest, Dry Farm Wines, Beauty Counter, and Branch Basics. And now it's time for our life lesson of the week. This week, we're going to talk about a subject that so many people struggle with, and that is emotional eating. All around us in books, TV shows, movies, we see the classic breakup story where the girl drowns her sorrows in a bag of chips and a pint of ice cream. And I think it's safe to say that all of us use food to cope at some point or another. But what if emotional eating or numbing with food is something that is holding you back from living the life you imagine? What if it is preventing you from reaching your goals, whether it be a goal weight or body size or just reaching for your hopes and dreams? Where do you turn for help and how can you overcome this pattern? We are joined today by Jessica Brassini, a woman who was led to help others overcome their emotional eating after learning how to get to the root of her own emotional eating struggles. She is on a mission to help other women who strive for excellence heal the roots of their emotional eating so that they can use food as a nourishing asset rather than a self-destructive way to cope, soothe, and attempt to escape their busy, stressful lives. So welcome, Jessica. We're so glad to have you here with us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So before we get into your background and your story, what is the big lesson that you hope to share with our listeners today? I would say the big lesson is that our relationship with food can be a wonderful portal for healing our relationships with ourselves. Oh, that. I love that. Mm-hmm. And we want to have a positive relationship with food. And we're meant to. I hope so. (laughs) We are meant to enjoy eating. It's supposed to be pleasurable. Nothing makes me sadder when people are like, we we should only eat to fuel our bodies. I'm like, no, no. (laughs) Food is meant to be enjoyable. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, and I'm, I think, a hedonist by nature, right? 
So I want to eat delicious food. And sometimes I'm like, I know this isn't good for me, but it tastes delicious and I want to eat it. And, you know, whether it's that or, you know, you're hiding in your bedroom with a bag of snacks under your bed because you don't want people to see you eating. I mean, either thing tends to affect people on some sort of level, like guilt or shame or whatever. So I think it's really important to help people look at food as nourishment. It can be pleasurable, but it should never be shameful. Right. Shame, guilt, embarrassment, self-loathing. I think these are all things that we really need to untangle from our relationship with food and even all the shoulds, right? Like what we should be eating, what we shouldn't be eating, because there's so much information out there these days about what we should and shouldn't be doing with food. I think it over or just really drowns out what the wisdom our body has for us and what we can really learn about ourselves and our needs, both physically and emotionally, if we're willing to take a deeper look at our patterns with food and what have we just accepted as normal, but isn't so normal. Right. So what got you started down this road? Tell us a little bit of your backstory. So... My work really started with my personal experience with emotional eater. So for a long, long time, I was an emotional eater and didn't know it. I didn't know it because I didn't have hundreds of pounds to lose. So I really didn't fit into the typical stereotype of someone who's overweight. I didn't know I was an emotional eater because I was already certified in nutrition teaching fitness classes full-time, so was very, very well-educated and had a lot of expertise in health and wellness. So you would probably consider someone who's an expert in health and wellness to be the last person who has issues with food, like myself. And I just really had spent so many years in therapy, and it was never brought up. It was never talked about. I was never called out for my issues with food or what I was doing with food or that I was even using food to cope. So I was doing this for such a long time, really struggling with like, why don't I have peace with food? Why do I eat the things that I know I shouldn't be eating? Why do I feel so crazy and compulsive? Why do I go to the pantry right when I walk in from work? Like what kind of like, what is wrong with me? And the more expertise and the more I got into my career of health and wellness, I, the more chaotic that I felt around food. I was like, there's, there's something missing here. Something is not right. And really like, I can't keep living with this, with this like secret burden of like food. It was like, always on my back, always haunting me, always with me until I just like couldn't bend it off. And then I would just cave and just end up overeating. So at that time, you know, I really first discovered that I was an emotional eater. And then once I got over that shock, it was a whole other mountain to climb to really get support that was right for me. Because like I said, I didn't fit into these extremes of, I didn't have hundreds of pounds to lose. My issues with food also weren't as extreme as in fitting into a box of having a full-blown eating disorder. 
Like I going to an eating disorder clinic is just way above and beyond what I was dealing with. So I was kind of like in this middle gray area of I know a lot. I, you know, have so much expertise inside of me and like why can't I get it together myself? And when I started searching, I knew I needed something different. I knew I needed something went that went above and beyond just eat healthier and work out more. And I knew that therapy wasn't also going to just be the only answer. So as I looked around for support, I was starting to see that it it just didn't exist. And a lot of the support was in the extremes. So that was when I really dedicated myself to investigating every single nook and cranny of my relationship with food, physically, mentally, and emotionally. From there, I found answers that like just completely blew my mind and that no one was talking about. And that really bridged the connection of mind, body, emotions, mental health, and like just put it all together. That's where the research that I now have around the four roots of emotional eating came from and really is like the launching pad that gave me my freedom that I now have. So I've been free from emotional eating for five years and counting. And my life and relationship with food looks drastically different. So it was all of this and knowing that it couldn't just be me. Like I couldn't be the only one who was kind of in this gray area that didn't fit into the extremes, that wouldn't go to the eating disorder clinic yet and needed support to really tackle this head on. And that's where Escape from Emotional Eating got birthed from. And it's been 12 years and counting since this business and mission has really started. So let me ask you this. In your bio, I read something that you had done like 926 hours of therapy or something. Am Mm -hmm. I close? 36, but yes. Probably more now because, you know, still in therapy. So, but that therapy was completely unrelated to your eating or not? So yes and no. So in other words, our relationship with food is connected to everything, but it wasn't an eating disorder specialist, again, because I didn't fit into the box of having an eating disorder. I wasn't anorexic. I wasn't bulimic. I didn't check these boxes. So it just didn't dawn on me and even my my parents at the time that I even had issues with food. I was, you know, from the outside, I looked like I had it all together. So I went to a therapist who, you know, had a pretty extensive background and And then from there, went to multiple therapists for various things that I was struggling with at various points in my life. And it seemed like from my experience that number one, it's an all or nothing thing when it comes to kind of therapy and specializations, right? Like there's the extreme of like eating disorder therapists or there's like general therapy. But again, it's like, where do I fit in? Where's the like gray area for people like me? So, so, so a lot of time it got overlooked. And this is what I also hear from a lot of my clients as well is that they're like therapy is great, number one. But number two, unless you're tackling it from this place of emotional eating and tackling it head on, it can, 
kind of exist beneath the surface until it's kind of like too extreme to ignore. That makes sense. Yep. So you mentioned that you did research and found the four roots of emotional eating. Can you share what those are? So this is really the heart or the core of my work. It's really what sets apart my work and it sets it apart from other emotional eating support out there because you really won't find this connecting of the dots anywhere else. But the four roots of emotional eating came from years and years of emotional eating experiences, myself, including hundreds and hundreds of other women, and really taking it all and starting to identify patterns and commonalities in all of them. And that's really where the four roots came from. Now, the four roots, believe it or not, have nothing to do with food themselves. They have everything to do with how we are operating mentally and emotionally in our lives. So for example, one of the four roots is hypervigilance. Hypervigilance is kind of like a mode of operation where we're in like a go, go, go. This is very common for high achievers, type A personalities, people who really strive for excellence, where we have a really hard time turning off or shutting down. And we'll often use food or other things to try to quote unquote, take the edge off, but actually are just ways of numbing. Okay. That's what I was thinking. When you, when you start talking about that, I was like, this is numbing. You've been so like, go, go, go all day. And now you're just numbing that. You're like, oh, now it's time to just. Right. But it, but it never really rejuvenates the mind or body, right? If we're using food to take the edge off, we're ignoring the deeper need behind it, the need for a break, the need for comfort, the need for security, the need for connection, the need for happiness. So like there's all these things underneath the surface that if we're using food, we're just stuffing deeper below the surface. So the four roots, there's four of them. Um, and I do have a quiz on my website, innerwork.me, that anyone who's listening, if you're interested, you can go over to innerwork.me and take the free assessment that will help you identify which of the four routes is most activated for you currently and then even give you beginner resources to start working with the root and start working with it to transform it. Because if we don't get to the roots of what's really going on, anything else is just not going to, it's just not going to cut it. When you said hypervigilance, and I know this is like people that are extremely driven, you know, they're like probably perfectionists, constantly climbing, whatever. A lot of that's just personality, but then a lot of it is trauma-based from things that have happened in their past. So does your program work on working through that, or is that something that they need to work like in conjunction with another therapist like while doing your, your program? How does that work? 
Yeah. So when we peel back the layers, we usually do find some what I'll call skeletons in the closet. And this can look different for everyone because everyone's life experiences are different. So it could be an abusive relationship. It could be a difficult parent-child relationship that they had growing up. It could be certain programming. It could have been certain socialization, even around food. So am I equipped to support people through that? Yes. And with the Depending on the client and our one-on-one work together, we may work in tandem with any kind of additional support that's needed. But yes, if we're going to go to the roots, then we have to be able to not only look at the skeletons in the closet, approach the skeletons in the closet, but pull them out, do some healing around it so that they don't have to live in the closet and we don't have to be like, oh, that thing from when I was six years old, but it's coming to the surface because something is being activated for healing. And that is what we do in our work together if we approach it, because some people don't have those skeletons or it just may not come up through our work together because everybody's experience is really different. How often do you see that people who come in and they think, you know, I had a happy childhood and everything was great. How often in your work do you uncover something that really was a trigger that people didn't even think was a trigger? I do know what you're saying. I mean, just to pull a number out, I would say 99% of people because there's a lot of, I mean, Let's be honest, emotional eating is a coping mechanism. We use it to survive. We use it as a way to push through, get through, sometimes survive. There was a time, I mean, I can just even speak for myself that I did experience an abusive relationship. And as I connected the dots back, I saw how it was interwoven and how it really shifted my relationship with food, but also my relationship with myself, both before and after that experience. So in the same way that like whenever we embark on something that's really going to test us, that's really going to like cause us to kind of rumble with who we are, change the foundation of how we do things, we are going to have to face these parts of ourselves or these parts of our past to bring healing if there hasn't been healing or be able to reach a deeper understanding about ourselves and what we need and things like that. So, and a lot of emotional eating, especially when it's happening before we get help, There's so much that's in denial. There's so much that's hidden that when we start peeling back the layers, there is like this period of awakening. Memories can come in. Memories from childhood that we thought were like benign actually were really a deeply rooted experience. So there's a lot. I mean, that all sounds like really grim, terrible, and like, why would anyone choose to do this? (laughs) But here's the gift in it all, is that when you embark on that journey or any kind of healing journey, 
you learn so much about yourself. And from that knowing, it creates this unshakable confidence because you know yourself the best, meaning that someone can't come in and be like pointing fingers or telling you you're something that you're not because you're like, I have been inside and outside and upside down inside myself and I know myself top to bottom. And there is this sense of confidence, this sense of security with yourself and in yourself and how you operate in the world. There's a sense of self-love and self-compassion that grows from these experiences and, and being willing to heal them. There's so much good that comes from it that it's totally worth whatever skeletons we find or whatever monsters in the closet there may be because of the payoff of confidence, love, compassion, security, happiness, like all of those things. I feel like once you identify perhaps what the the driver is or one of the drivers is, then I mean, to me, that itself is just empowering. You're like, oh, okay. Like, there's a reason behind my behavior. It's not because I'm weak or I don't have self-control or whatever. So to me, that would be like, once you have that like light bulb moment, then you can tackle a plan to put that to rest so that you can move forward healthier. Yeah, understanding, understanding why it's happening or what you're doing or or what you're trying to soothe is such a big important step. So you mentioned one, hypervigilance. What are the other three roots? So hypervigilance is one, fear is another root. And that can often show up as using food as a way um, to cope with stress or anxiety or overwhelm. Another root is self-loathing. So this is if you're really hard on yourself, kind of feel constantly like you're never measuring up or never enough. And then uh, the fourth one is self-abnegation. So this is when you sacrifice your needs or desires so that you don't ruffle anyone's feathers. It's not quite people-pleasing, but I would say it's a cousin to people-pleasing. Okay. So I did this... Really? Well, I just asked a question once in our community, and this has been a couple of years ago. And I asked, can you remember the very first time that you like noticed your body in a negative way? Like where you felt shame about your body or, you know, you realized that maybe you were different than somebody else. And the interesting thing to me, and this is something that I think probably a lot of parents don't even think about is that so many of the stories went back to grade school, like, you know, Mm -hmm. eight or nine years old. And these people started having feeling shame about their bodies when they were young children, which then sort of escalates into you, you know what you should do to not be ashamed of your body, but it's like, you're driven to cope and to feel better, uh, when then just like this whole shame spiral starts, but it starts so young. So it's no wonder by the time a person's in their 20s or 30s or 40s and they want to tackle it, that it's so deeply embedded. Yeah. I mean, you referenced ages eight and nine. I personally have a memory of using food as a way to cope from when I was six years old. I have clients who have memories of someone 
making a comment, their own mother making a comment about their ears from when they were even younger than that. And now like 40 years later, now just recognizing that she has the self-consciousness around her ears because of something that happened when she was a really young child. And similar to what we were talking about, of like if we're willing to look and approach and even get help around these things, these can be gateways for freedom. These can be gateways for a whole other level of self-acceptance and self-compassion. And I really personally believe, and it's what makes me so passionate about my mission, is that if we want our future generations to live accepting of their bodies and empowered in their choices of how they take care of themselves, then we as adults have to do a lot of the healing and the heavy lifting so that we're not passing this dysfunction onto our children or onto the younger generations because it's happening. It's everywhere. And I like to say like our society does not have a good, healthy relationship with food. So I believe as the adults in this time and age right now is that we all have a choice of whether we, you know, choose to take the responsibility of healing our relationship with food so that we're not unconsciously or even consciously passing that dysfunction on in any way, shape or form. I think about moms and daughters, especially, but I'm assuming it could be even sons. And then you know, like so many people say, well, my mom was always on a diet or my mom wouldn't let me eat this as a kid or whatever, because she didn't want me to struggle with my weight. Like she's always struggled with hers. And I mean, I just saw a quote from Martha Stewart. She's the front cover of the swimsuit issue of Sports Illustrated. Have you guys seen that? I have seen it. You know, she, here she's, I don't even know how old she is, 80, 80? in her 80s. And yeah, yeah. and, um, you know, when they asked her about, you know, her body or whatever, she is still idealizing her mother. And she brought this up in an interview who, you know, she had all these kids and she could still wear a two piece swimsuit. And then she went on to have two more kids and she could still wear, you know, and she's 80 years old and she's still thinking about her Her mother mother in a swimsuit and that that's what she has had to live up to. It's true. I mean, my mother was a dance teacher. People who know me know that. I've, I've said that before. But she always, we we are gifted with being a pear shape. We have, our thighs have cellulite. That is how we are shaped. But my mother always criticized her thighs and her legs and said, no one should have to look at my thighs because they're just so ugly. And, and I was like, well, my thighs look just like yours. So I internalized that message and wore, I did not go out in shorts that were not like to the knee kind of shorts because you were going to see my cellulite. Even I remember being in college and, and you know, all my friends are just prancing around and I'm like, no one should be looking at my thighs. And it just, it, it just felt, it, there was that shame that my mother passed on. Yes. And she never looked at my thighs and says, your thighs are ugly, but it, she said it about her own and then I took it in. Right. A great example of the unconscious passing on of the dysfunction. And this is why in a part of my work, we do what's called mothers, daughters, and food, which really 
looks at our entanglement between food and I'll say our parents, because it might be our mothers, it might be our fathers. Um, And I recently sent out a newsletter about this, about how our relationships with food are so entangled with our mothers. And it has nothing to do with our relationship with her today. It has everything to do with the fact that she was our first source of food, even before we were like in the physical world, like in the womb, that her, you know, love-hate relationship with her body becomes our love-hate relationship with our body. There's just so much, right? That again is unconsciously connected. But when we recognize, oh, like I internalized that because I was a child and I didn't know what I now know, then as adults, we can then make choices and make decisions to cut cords, to keep something if it's valuable or to let go of something and create our new like kind of relationship with food and our bodies that serves us better in the same way that we do not live the same lifestyles that we that our mothers did Uh, like our even just the role of women in today has has really shifted compared to what it was 50 years ago i believe that we need to also be updating our relationship with food and our bodies to match what is in integrity with ourselves now so that we're not living as if we're in the 1950s trying to adhere to a set of like rules that just aren't even healthy in the first place. Right. So let me ask you this. Another thing that we hear a lot is, well, whenever I had a bad day, my grandma would bake me cookies or my dad would take me out for ice cream. And so people associate like, I've had a bad day. I deserve cookies and ice cream. Mm-hmm. And those are just, I mean, really, that's a coping mechanism for a bad day. So how does a person start to, number one, understand that like that's not a healthy coping mechanism? And then what what sort of things, what sort of steps can they start to take to create new coping mechanisms? Yeah. So I believe that we all deserve cookies and ice cream, no matter what day it is, right? Like, I don't believe that like what we receive needs to be dependent on outside circumstances. That's a really disempowered relationship to have. So number one is just starting to recognize like our agency, our ability to make decisions about what we receive in any form, whether it's food or something else, doesn't have to be dependent on good or bad. And it doesn't have to even be dependent on judgment because that's what we're really talking about is I'm going to judge a situation and then based on how I judge it, then you either get or you don't get. And that's well, that sucks. You know, like that's like not a fun way to live. So I believe that we should all, or we all have the ability to have cookies, ice cream, or whatever kind of food or nourishment we want, regardless of what is going on. And that starts to set the foundation that your needs can be met regardless of 
what happens outside of you because we all have needs. And I do believe both physically and emotionally, they need to be served regardless of what did or did not happen in the day. So that's first and foremost. Second part of that is recognizing that we do have these associations, right? If you think of movies, what do you think of? Probably popcorn, uh, candy, you know, the soda pop, you know, these things that we associate with certain experiences and those associations got planted at some point and we can choose to change them. So going back to kind of like the overall is like recognizing that there are these associations and the key being is that if the association is no longer serving you, then you have the power and you have the need to change it. Now, I'm not saying, and I don't want to put a blanket statement in that never having cookies and ice cream, that's like, that's not what I'm saying. And and I really don't believe that's not really healthy either, just to be like, I can never have cookies or ice cream again. But it's about learning how to eat in integrity with yourself and who you are now. And just because it was something that your grandparents did or your parents did, or even your friends did, we always have the ability to choose to either continue that pattern or, or change it. So one of the things I had to really rumble with in my healing was, well, how do I celebrate? How do I acknowledge if I'm not using food? Because I'm Italian, like that cookie story was pulled right from, (laughs) like, you know, right from my life. And what I found, you know, is like, I immediately went to the next quote unquote, like soothing techniques of like, oh, well, I'll buy myself something. I'll go shopping. That's fun. And it was like, well, what if I don't want to, or don't have the means to be able to spend money at that time? What's another way that I can celebrate or acknowledge myself without such a cost? And what I actually discovered about myself was that what feels like the most rewarding thing is creating time, whether that's time to rest, time to do whatever I feel like, time with people that I love. What I discovered about myself was that I really feel nourished when I have time. So knowing that I could start to curate and create experiences so much so that when I got married five years ago, I knew that what I wanted more than anything was time with my friends and family. So we, you know, we planned our wedding around a destination so that I could like literally have that time. And that was more important to me than what food we had. I don't even think we had a wedding cake because I just didn't want one. Like, <laughs> like, so when we discover these things, we get out of these autopilots, particularly autopilots that potentially or maybe harmful or self-sabotaging to us and start to create what it is that we truly need in a way that's more in integrity with who we are now. Would it be safe to say, um, I feel like, the world at large doesn't take time for self-care. 
Would it be safe to say that when you are having this pull to turn to food to soothe, that what you may really need is just some time for self-care, whatever that means to you? That's a really great way to put or like simplify a very like complicated (laughs) situation in the sense that when we are feeling compelled to eat, when we are feeling compelled, and I want to be really clear that a compulsion is something that you feel out of control with. So that could be that experience of, I know I shouldn't be eating this, but I'm eating it. That's like an example of compulsion. So when we are feeling compelled to cope, soothe, or escape, or numb with food, underneath that, what we can guarantee is that there is an unmet need. So so you are correct in saying that, yes, we do need something. What we have to go on the journey to explore and what my work is really about is understanding the language of our body, understanding the language of these needs, understanding what is this actually really trying to tell me? Because in all honesty, time doesn't really heal. It's what we choose to do in the time. So for someone who really has has felt like they've kind of lost themselves and are emotionally eating, saying, saying you need time to take care of yourself, they'll be like, what do I do? Like I go get my nails done. I don't feel better. I still want to eat or I go for that walk and I still want to eat or I, so it's about understanding like in the same way that I talked about, like, well, I understand now that like time is something that's really valuable to me. I have a client who's, who's like actually going out and connecting with people and having fun. Like that's nourishing to me. So our self-care can look so different and have so many different flavors. We have to be willing to get to the deeper roots of what's going on. So whatever it is we choose to do in that time, we are actually reaping the benefits from it. That makes sense. Yeah. So I bet there are a lot of people out there who are struggling with emotional eating who may be listening and thinking, gosh, am I emotional eater? I didn't think, I mean, like I'm listening to you and I'm thinking maybe I'm an emotional eater and I just control it. Like I'll be the first one to tell you if I'm having a really stressed day, everything's going wrong. I'm mad at my husband. I'm mad at the customer service person who didn't resolve my person, my problem that I was on hold with for 45 minutes. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I'm going to be like, I really, I want something crunchy. That's my thing. And I'm like, I need salt and vinegar potato chips. Well, I don't keep them in my house because I love salt and vinegar potato chips and I would find a way to eat them every day. And I don't feel like I need to eat salt and vinegar potato chips every day for my health. But Mm -hmm. I absolutely say, all right, I want salt and vinegar potato chips. That's going to make me feel better right this second. And I will get in my car and I will drive and I will go buy a small bag of salt and vinegar potato chips and I will eat them all and they're delicious. And I do feel better afterwards. I mean, that's emotional eating right there, right? Yes. And (laughs) we have to look at, okay, what is it doing to you long-term? And this is what differentiates the people that I work with 
versus kind of like the general population. Because the people that I work with, that pattern is holding them back. That pattern is something that has been haunting them for years. That pattern they've been trying to tell themselves isn't that big of a deal, but they're also recognizing that when they eat salt and vinegar potato chips, it chaps their mouth and hurts their stomach and they have diarrhea the next day. So these are just some examples. I'm not saying that all of my clients experience these exact cases, but what you've so graciously and vulnerably shared about your experience is what happens when we use food to manage a short-term energy or emotional experience. There will be a long-term effect to that. And I think it's important that we are looking or each one of us is really being honest with ourselves and evaluating like, is this something that is holding me back? Do I then wake up the next day wondering like, why are my pants not fitting and why have I gained five pounds and not unable to connect it to the eating experience we had the night before? So for me and the people that I work with, they're clear that this has been something that's been going on and it's been going on and they can't really keep it a secret anymore because They're not going for the job that they want because they don't feel confident in themselves or they don't feel confident that they'll be able to handle a higher level of stress or intensity in their life. Maybe they've tried to gain control of their emotional eating through trying to eat healthier or exercise more. And it's getting to the point where they have to have to exercise every single day just to maintain some sort of status quo. So these are just some of the examples of like how emotional eating can impact us in the long term if we keep engaging in patterns like you're saying. What I can Can I can I pop in here with something real quick? It sounds to me like probably we all then, you know, if if we if we broadly define emotional eating is eating in response to positive or negative emotions or or an association or something, then I think probably every human does it, right? Every human. Oh, you know, I'm gonna have a glass of wine today or because I had a hard day. But then I think when it becomes problematic, like like having those common responses to food is one thing, but when it's problematic and it becomes a compulsion, like you said, can't stop. Or like intrusive if, if it, thoughts about it. Intr- yes. Like like us going out and having a small bag of salt and vinegar potato chips versus buying huge bags, eating them in your car, hiding them, being ashamed. Like you don't feel ashamed when you have that small bag of salt oh, and no, vinegar Oh no, I 100% chips. make the conscious decision. Like I haven't had salt and vinegar chips in three months and I want to do it and I'm going to do it. Yep. I know my face is going to be puffy tomorrow and that's just the consequence I'm paying today. I think what I really want to clarify based on this conversation, because it's one that I have with basically every human when I say I work with emotional eaters, is that to really reclaim your power around what you personally deem as an issue or not an issue. Because what I truly believe is that everyone's relationship with food and their relationship with their bodies and therefore their relationship with themselves is unique. What I really want to clarify is that if you already have a felt sense that you have issues with food, then it's time to get the help that you've been resisting. If you're somewhere in that 
well, I don't know. Do I? Do I really have an issue? What's going on? Like, like, and if this is like new information to you, then you are way earlier in this journey, if at all in the journey. But like, I really want to be very clear that there are people listening to this podcast who know and are resonating with what we are saying. And you are, you are scared of getting help. If that is you, I highly recommend you go to innerwork.me right now. You take that quiz, you get started taking a different approach to your relationship with food because eating healthier and working out is great. We should all be doing it, but it's not going to make your emotional eating go away. And at the end of the day, you have to be the one who is at peace with your relationship with food and your relationship with your body. And if that equation involves cookies or cakes or whatever, then be at peace with that. And if you're not at peace, do the work that helps you to get at peace. I think that's really, really key. Peace is the ultimate. Yeah. And everyone's relationship with food is for them to decide. And if you're struggling, get help. Well, thank you so much for being here today, Jessica. And the link will be in show notes. And now it's time for our listener-led lesson. Today's listener-led lesson comes from Chris. If you ever get lost in a city, the best person to ask for directions is someone walking a dog. If they are out walking a dog, it's a good certainty that they live in the area. Okay, that is like a genius tip. That is a genius tip. Although it's not true for where I live. (laughs) Well, because people bring their dogs on vacation. People bring their dogs to the beach. But if you're in a city, I'm not, you know, I'm on the beach. It's maybe not true for a beach, but... That is a great tip if you're in a city. At the end of each show, we share a motivational quote from a listener. And today's quote comes from Brenda. The quote is, you must choose to take hold of what you can control and let go of what you cannot. You cannot control your circumstances, but you can control your character. You cannot control the actions of others, but you can control the choices you make. You cannot control the outcome, but you can control the process. Brenda wrote, I have this quote on my bathroom mirror. I suffer from anxiety and the past few years have been tough in this world we live in. The pandemic, financial and political uncertainty, and global issues. Sometimes it starts to feel overwhelming and I feel powerless to help or change anything. It's during these times that I remember the only one that I am in charge of, the only one I can control, is me. I can do whatever is in my power to do that soothes my conscience but anything outside of that, I have to let go. It reminds me to do my best and forget the rest. I am but one small, tiny part of this big world, but I am a big part of my small world around me. So I do what I can to make a difference in my little world for those around me. I love that. That's a great quote. Thank you so much, Brenda. Instead of traditional podcast ads, we develop sales and affiliate relationships with companies we love. When you shop with us, you'll not only have access to great products that we personally vetted, but you'll know that with every purchase, you're helping to support the podcast and make it possible.